بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستهديه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فهو المهتد ومن يضلل فلن تجد له وليا مرشدا وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله Oh Allah bless us today with the second day of this uh, course and make us all sincere and uh, able to listen and apply rather than to listen for the sake of education and intellectual luxury, but to be practical and apply what we could. And, oh Allah, make us love the stories of those related to the Prophet ﷺ and the children, bearing in mind that those children are companions and any respect that we have for those companions, does not just go to people like Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, عنهم, but goes also to the children that are 10 years, 7 years, 5 years. People that we might look at as children. We have to say Anas ibn Malik, we have to say Abdullah ibn Ja'far. And this is something that I should have said and stated at the beginning, this course could have been accurately called Companions Around the Prophet. Even when we talk about women, Companions Around the Prophet. So why then children are not looked at as companions, bearing in mind that they seen the Prophet ﷺ as Muslims. Brothers and sisters, what have we been doing so far? Well, we have been looking at a builder, dealing with very sophisticated living beings, children, children who are not always rational and reasonable in their behavior and attitude, in their questions and queries. And imagine this builder. He's not just designated with the responsibility of talking to children. This builder is building a nation, a community, a society, building humanity. This builder is not just dealing with you, he's dealing with the unseen, he's dealing with the jinn. This builder is not just dealing with people on earth, but he is communicating with living beings in heaven. He is receiving revelation. He goes to Isra and Mi'raj. He goes and visits heaven. He looks at hell from a distance. He speaks to Jibreel and he looks at the angels, yet he has time to talk to children, yet he has time to address their concerns, even if they were minor concerns, as minor as a dying pet. And this builder is not hasting things. This builder is building blocks. And the first block was the block of emotionality, the block of love, the block of mercy, the block of building a bridge where it could be then later used to build other blocks. So this bridge of emotionality, love, mercy, between the child and the parent, the father, the builder, the prophet, وسلم, is the bridge that is going to transfer the other blocks. And if the block of aqidah is heavy as it accurately is, but the bridge is weak, the block is going to fall in the middle of the river. If 
the bridge is weak, the block of ibadah is not going to sustain itself, and the child will pray for a while when the parents are uh, looking at him, but when he goes outside the house, he goes to do other things that has nothing to do with ibadah. Because this bridge was weak from the beginning. And Rasulullah spent a lot of time, more than 70 minutes that we spent yesterday, to build that bridge. Today we are going to talk about the rest of the blocks. And inshallah, today we hope to argue that now the building is complete and the children are grown up and they are adults and they are doing exactly the same mission that Rasulullah did with them, with their children. And there, there is this process of a continuous building, building, building. Now it's unfortunate in our case, that we have to destroy buildings to build new ones. It's double the effort. And that's why Rasulullah said that I miss my beloved ones. The hadith, famous hadith, I miss my beloved ones. And the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, aren't we your beloved ones? He said, no, you are my companions, you are my friends. Antum ashabi, but I'm missing ahbabi. He said, who are the ahbabak, ya Rasulullah? Who are your beloved ones? You know who are they? It's you. You are the ahbab. Rasulullah if he saw you, say, you habibi, come. My beloved ones, come. They said, ya Rasulullah, why? Why they are ahbabak? He says something that explains exactly what I'm saying, destroying the building and building a new building. He said, because they believed in me without seeing me. And they attempted to do whatever I ordered them to do without any help from my side. You found me to help you, but they found no one to help them. They haven't found a decent uh, parent or a decent school or a decent community or a decent friendship. They haven't found, yes, books and talks and conferences, but this is not like the Prophet and what is the result of all that absence? Well, good news, good news. Good news, O oh beloved ones to the Rasul Sallallahu Good news for you. And the one who loves always gives good news. And this is a gift. What is the good news? The good news is that who practices the sunnah of Rasul Sallallahu As if he was alive, he gets 50 times the reward of the companions. Can you believe that? And the Sahaba were shocked as you might be shocked now. They said, Ya Rasulullah, 50 times the reward of us, or do we get 50 times the reward of them? Because they thought that because I saw the Prophet, I am honorable, and indeed they are honorable. But Rasulullah is wanting to give them a new twist to this feeling of honor. He wants to make them feel that others could be also honorable. And he says, no, 50 times the reward of you. So this is the good news. But the point is that the process of building continues. And you have to build. But before building, you have to read. You have to educate yourselves, brothers and sisters. I cannot hit it hard than that. I cannot hit it hard by saying, please, please, please read. Even those who are not married, read. Read about your life. Read about marriage, read about children. This is your destiny. This is your future. I have uh, two daughters. 
And I was fascinated when I read this hadith where Rasulullah said to the Sahaba, whoever is blessed with three daughters and he takes proper care of them, he will go to Jannah. That's the mission. That's not a suicide mission. That's not killing yourself to go to Jannah. There is a longer route, but an enjoyable route. What is more enjoyable than taking your children to swim or to bounce a car? This is an enjoyable route, and it's going to take you to the same destiny, Jannah. The Sahaba, it seems one of the Sahaba, had one, one of them had two daughters. So he said, what about those, Ya Rasulullah, who have two daughters? I think he's asking the question on behalf of me. And the Rasulullah this is the beauty of having lots of intelligent companions. That you don't have to say, oh, I wish someone asked this question, because indeed there was someone that asked that question. So Rasulullah he said, as that kind person, kind prophet, he said, even if two daughters. And in another narration, it seems that there was another sahabi who had one daughter. He said, Ya Rasulullah, what about even one daughter? It's good that you didn't have a bachelor. He said, what about that who is bachelor? He's in trouble. So I always say to myself, why not? Why not my mission in this life is to take care of these two daughters and do my utmost until they are married. I'm not, I'm not sure what the husband will do, but why not do my utmost and seek Jannah through them? And I always visualize in my mind this. I always visualize that I am struggling to go to Jannah. Struggling. But the two daughters, I encounter them on the gate of Al-Jannah. And I'm seeking permission from them. Please open for your father the door of Jannah. And they are, both of them, one is taking one door and the other, and they are opening the door and saying, Tfaddal Baba, get inside. I always visualize this. And when I visualize that, I say, I'm going to struggle to make them better girls. But better boys for those who have boys. Better community. Because you will get it, inshallah, blessed in this dunya and you will get the blessing of Allah in Jannah. This is by way of an introduction, but also reminding you of what we did yesterday. Today we are building a fourth block, which is the block of morals. So I began actually these blocks, one, two, three, I have thought about them and how to organize them in a very careful way. And I thought, I said, first it's the love, first it's the emotion. First is this confidence between the murabbi and the child or between the parent and the child or between the Prophet ﷺ and the child. Then when the child begins to love and accepts, you then begin to talk to him or her about iman and aqidah and creed and belief. And then when that block is built, again it's being cemented or complemented with another block which is the block of worship block of ibadah. And I said that these two blocks, if they are built together, they are not on the top of each other, but they are adjacent to each other, cementing and supporting each other. But the manifestation of all that is what? Is behavior, is attitude, hence morals today, the fourth block. I think that when we talk about manners, when we talk about adab, when we talk about akhlaq, which unfortunately some people would like to argue that there is no such thing in Islam as adab or akhlaq. But when we talk about this concept of akhlaq and adab and uh, manners and behavior, I think 
that before that could be manifested genuinely and truly, I think there has to be a concept of ibadah, a concept of belief. And if that is not well ingrained and situated and built in the mind of the child, I think manners will be pretentious, artificial, superficial, cultivated in water. Any wave can come and destroy it. That's my idea, my opinion. I could be wrong. And that's why I said this is the fourth block. Now, when we talk about manners and akhlaq, what can we say immediately? Brothers and sisters, imagine. What is the consequences or what is the outcome or what is the result of a child that have been brought up by someone who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about him, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ do you understand what Azim means? Okay, if you look at the Quran and when, when the Quran asks mu'mins or Muslims to be of well-mannered, you will notice that the Quran asks you as human beings, as Muslims, to have khuluq hasan, hasan, good manners. Now, this is what you are required to do. What Azim means is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling you that al Rasulullah is in a higher status than even those who have akhlaq hasana. So any sahabi, any companion, any tabi'i, any holy person on this earth, now, yesterday and tomorrow, who you think is magnificent in morals and manners and has the best of akhlaq, always be certain that our Rasulullah is higher, higher, higher than that, so much so that he has akhlaq azima, not akhlaq hasana. Do you understand now the impact that this verse could have? وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ حَسَنٍ No, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ And if you look at the word azim in the Quran, it's always linked with azama with greatness. The Quran is Azim. Allah is Azim. The day of judgment is an Azim day. Hellfire is Azab, Azim. But the morals of Rasulullah deserve to be on that same level of Azama. Hence, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ Now, imagine that this Azim, this human being, is moving on earth, interacting with other human beings. Do you think that they will be mediocre level in manners? Do you think that they will be artificial? Do you think that they will be superficial? No way. Why? Because the Adama is radiating. It's like the sun radiating its heat. From miles and miles and miles we feel the heat. So you feel the Adama of that khuluq. You feel the Adama of that khuluq. Human beings feel the Adama of that khuluq. But the sun, the beams, the... Light of the sun is not just felt by the human beings. It's felt by the plants. It's felt by the animals. It's felt by everything on this earth. Well, indeed, it's the same with Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. The azama of Prophet Muhammad ﷺ's akhlaq is felt by all living organisms. What? Yes. By animals? Yes. By plants? Yes. Plants? Yes. You remember the hadith that I mentioned where Rasul Sallallahu used to lean on the trunk of a tree for many, many months before they made him a member 
and something to step on it to give the khutbah. And carpenter came and said, Ya Rasulullah, I'll do you a proper member where the imam now steps on the stairs and says, Salamu alaykum, and sits down and the khutbah begins. Before that, Rasulullah used to lean on the trunk of a tree. Now, you sit now on these chairs, and you will leave these chairs, and Patrick and Michael and Monday or next academic term will sit on these chairs, and this chair will witness many people sitting on them. And the chair will be tear and, and wear and will be thrown away. But that did not happen to the trunk because it was not like these chairs. And the person who was leaning on that trunk was not any person. Do you imagine, brothers and sisters, that this trunk continued to weep after the member was made to Rasul Sallallahu out of missing that leaning? And they say in the hadith that uh, anyone who entered the mosque could hear the weeping of that trunk like we today or yesterday heard the weeping of children. Imagine yourself, brothers and sisters, imagine yourself going into the mosque and hearing this weep. Imagine going to the mosque of a Nabi Sallallahu Imagine if you were taken to the past, the time of Rasul Sallallahu and you were taken by one of the bodyguards, one of the companions, who will say to you, I'm going to take you for a trip to Masjid al-Rasul Sallallahu and you will go and see the masjid, very humble masjid. You might even enter with your shoes because there is no fancy carpets. And you see or you hear a weeping. And you say, what's this? And he will say, this is a trunk weeping. What would you say to the companion? You look at that incident. You look at Rasul Sallallahu I'm not kidding you. This is a hadith that is in Muslim and Bukhari. And you look at Rasul Sallallahu standing up. And you will ask the companion, who is this? He will say, you don't know him? This is Rasul Sallallahu your prophet. You are his habib. You say, this is Rasul Sallallahu mashallah. And then you see Rasul Sallallahu going and embracing and hugging this trunk. And the weeping stops. And then you hear Rasul saying to the companions, Wallahi, if I did not embrace that trunk, this trunk will be weeping, continuing to weep until the day of judgment. Until the day of judgment means what? Means maybe one day you will witness that trunk weeping in 2005, but only because that trunk was embraced by Rasul it stopped. Can you think about that? So think then, think then. I'm trying to rise your aspirations, rise your imaginations up, 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 to make it then intelligible and easy to think about children then raised by the Prophet ﷺ. Why shouldn't they be uvama then? Why shouldn't they be the best of morals then? Let's now talk about incidents and some things that are happening on the ground. Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu anhu, he says, I served al Rasul sallam. I worked for al Rasul sallam for 10 years. Imagine when someone talks about his working experience in Boots or Sainsbury, or I worked in Sainsbury for two months. We had an idiot manager. We had a silly, the salary wasn't good. Now imagine a child saying, I worked for Rasulullah for 10 years. And he never, wallahi, he says, wallahi, ma qala li, uff, qat. He never said to me, uff. 
He never said to me, why did you do that, which I didn't tell you to do? And why didn't you do that, which I told you a week or a minute or an hour ago to do? Wallahi, he never told me this. But it's interesting and fascinating to note that Anas ibn Malik is using a special expression. In fact, he's using a Quranic expression. Wallahi ma qala li ufqat. He never said to me ufqat. And that is a Quranic expression in, in relation to who? In relation to parents. Imagine Allah is saying to you, don't say uff to your parents to have khuluq hasan. And Rasulullah is not saying uff to a 10 years old servant. Isn't this khuluq azim? Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you see the twist? The twist is that we are asked not to say off to our parents because this is our level. This is what we could do to be the best. But Rasulullah can do even better than that. He can say to the children anything that is not disrespectful, even if it was the word off. Can you see the azamah of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? And there is another incident that is in the book of Muslim where Anas ibn Malik again narrates this hadith. He says, كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم من أحسن الناس خلقا فأرسلني يوما لحاجة. He said, Anas ibn Malik is, you can see Anas ibn Malik, رضي الله عنه, this love. Whenever he narrates an incident, he has to first of all give a background to it or a statement or a comment. He says, Rasulullah had the best of manners among human beings. One day, you see the story begins. He said, one day he sent me to do something for him. And we are not told in the hadith what is that thing. Neither Anas tells you because this is not the point. There is another point. And in fact, Anas says, I had the intention to go but not immediately. And he's being honest in that. And then I went to do that thing and on the way I saw some children. And naturally he stopped and played with them. And he did not do that thing. Or at least, he did not do it yet. فَإِذَا بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ He says, then suddenly, I heard a Rasulullah behind me, calling me, Anas! فَنَظَرْتُ إِلَيْهِ وَهُوَ يَضْحَكُ Fascinating, brothers and sisters. I've actually marked this statement. And again, imagining. I'm imagining. He said, فَنَظَرْتُ إِلَيْهِ Of course, he called him. So I looked at him. And I saw him laughing. Is this a context of laughter? Is this a moment of joy? Is it a moment of joy when you ask someone to do something? A husband asks the wife. A wife asks the husband. And comes an hour later. And the dinner is late. Or the lunch is not be- Or the dishes are not. Or the nappies have not been. Is this a context of smile or laughter? Or is it a context of reproachment? And why did you do this? Or why didn't you do that? فَنَظَرْتُ إِلَيْهِ وَهُوَ يَضْحَكُ And said, Anas, did you go to where I ordered you to go? He said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm going, I'm going. Typical of children. But Rasulullah exactly understood that this is exactly typical of children. It's typical that children forget. It's typical that children are fascinated with other children playing. And they look at them and forget everything else. It's typical. 
And out of this expectation that this is typical, Rasulullah smiled and laughed. Do you know when you become angry? You become angry when you are surprised. You become angry when you anticipate or expect that once you told your wife to clean the dishes or vice versa, if you are a feminist, if you expected him or her to delete, you come and you are expecting the dishes to be, but you can't realize that at that time there are, there is friends or there is something interesting in the TV or she was calling a friend or that she went to a circle or whatever. And you were surprised. Rasulullah the fact that he is laughing and smiling shows that he knows the nature of children. And this is exactly as parents what you should Come to learn and understand. And when you come to learn and understand that a three years old boy behaves like this, you will never be angry. Six years old boy or girl behaves like this, this is typical of six years, you will never be angry. It doesn't mean that you become insensitive or that you leave your role as a guider or as an advisor, but it means that you don't become hysterical and you don't change the munkar or change the wrong with something that will bring, or that, that, that will bring a greater wrong, or something that will break your original bridge that you spent years and years in building, the emotional bridge, the bridge of confidence. Because once this bridge is broken, once this confidence is preached, expect anything. Expect that he will look for alternatives. Expect that he will lie at you. Expect that he will hate you one day. Expect all that. And Rasulullah wanted to laugh and wanted to smile and wanted to assure him. And I'm sure that this smile had a tremendous effect on Anas and made him a little bit embarrassed and said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm going now to go because he saw this confidence that Rasulullah gave to him. I trust that you're going. And that's why I'm laughing. I'm, I'm feeling safe. I'm feeling happy because I know that you are going. That feeling that is radiated and being through this laughter is what gave him this confidence. I think to say, I'm going now, Ya Rasulullah. It's different than if he raised his voice and shouted at him. He will go, but he will go saying, why did you do that? Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلُوا خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ Rasulullah smiled and he went loving more Rasulullah and the proof for that is that he's narrating the story now when he is probably 60, 70 years old man. Anas, again, عنه, he said, I served Rasulullah for 10 years. This is another narration, but it shows another dimension. Anas, mashallah, عنه, is holding the camera from many directions and bringing us many narrations. If anything, it shows that he said this hadith to many people, that I served Rasulullah for 10 years. What a pleasure. And he says, he never ordered me to do something which I didn't do. So there were incidents that he didn't do what he ordered him to do, falamani, and he blamed me. And when his family, he's talking about the wives of Rasulullah blame me, he intercedes to say what? To say, leave him alone. Allah did not allow it to happen, and that's why it did not happen. What, what did Rasul, do you know what Rasulullah is doing here? Of course, he's educating the wives, but more importantly, he's teaching the child about qada and qadr about predestiny. Not in a way that he will, okay, I will not study and inshallah I'll make dua, or that Anas next day will not do anything and become lazy, but in a constructive way, leave him. It is as if he's saying, it's something of the past now, but oh Anas, think about tomorrow and think about the future, but in the past, it's gone now. He is educating the household about qada and qadr. Equally importantly, 
he's not blaming the child. And blaming, by the way, is not a very good thing to do. It makes you unconfident or it makes you uh, doubt yourself. And I think that when children are being blamed all the time, they grow up and they pass on this behavior of blaming to their wives or if it was a girl to the husband because this is what they have been in the habit of doing, blaming and, and, and criticizing. One of the items in that block of morals is rahmah. And again, I'm sorry to talk about rahmah a lot, but really I think in this society, in this time, where relations are being severed by parents and children and wives and husbands, we need to talk about rahmah. I think this is, the, this is what moistens this, this rust in the relationship. This is what, what puts the oil in, in, in that rust. So, Rasulullah was also teaching, not teaching, uh, radiating rahmah, and they will absorb it and internalize it. And the hadith, I mentioned it in previous sessions, but I will mention it now very quickly and comment on it. Abdullah bin Ja'far, radiallahu anhu, one of the young boys, he said, I went with Rasulullah one day, and he entered into a fruit garden, and he saw a camel. And the camel, when... When the camel, he says, when the camel saw Rasulullah, he started weeping. Does this remind you of a trunk? So the camel started weeping. Subhanallah. Have you seen the sixth sense where uh, a boy uh, sees, sees the dead and uh, the solicitor appeared to be uh, <laughs> dead as well or the lawyer who, or the psychiatrist, I think, or whatever who, that uh, Bruce Willis basically. So sixth element, the boy was seeing the dead and the dead were asking for his help. Imagine that Rasulullah is walking and everyone is weeping to him. Imagine he goes, here, here a camel weeps. Uh, here, Ya Rasulullah, I was murdered years ago. He murdered me, Ya Rasulullah, and he weeps. The trunk is weeping because, Ya Rasulullah, you, you leaned on me and now you don't. And he embraces like the boy tries to help those dead. And the Rasulullah is, is, this is exactly what Rasulullah was doing with this camel when the camel was weeping. I assure you that if Rasulullah did not enter at that point in that garden, the camel will not weep. Weep to who? To Ali ibn Abi Talib or to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq? No, he's weeping to Rasulullah because he knows that Rasulullah is the prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he weeps and the fascinating thing, and this is the, the beauty of accompanying great people, not to mention prophets, is that you will see amazing things. I don't think that again, if Abdullah ibn Ja'far entered alone into that fruit garden, he will see camels weeping. But he saw camels weeping, which is amazing, because he was with amazing people. And when you are with amazing people, you cannot witness other than amazing situations. So he saw Rasulullah actually when that camel weeped, he saw again Rasulullah wiping on the head of the camel. Just to tell you that wiping is not just for children. He wipes anything. He embraces anything. He is an open heart. To anyone that wants love and care. Because he is rahmah lil'alameen. Rahmah not just in rhetoric or in manabr or in sermons or in conferences, but in real world. So he, we, he actually wipes the, the, the head and then the head of that camel and then he asks, who is the owner of that camel? And a young boy comes. You see children around the Prophet? A young boy comes and says, Ya Rasulullah, it's me. He said, and he says to him, Rasulullah he said, Won't you fear Allah in that animal? 
in that animal which Allah made you own, that camel complained to me. Look, this weeping, there is a language, there is a conversation taking place, by the way. You can't hear it. You can't see it. Abdullah Jafar did not report it before Rasulullah disclosed the content of the conversation. In the same way that no one knew what the snake was telling Rasulullah probably saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that they were your grandsons and left. So a conversation is taking place. It has complained to me that you starve it to death. You don't give it food, proper food to eat. I think you should memorize this hadith and say it to all animal rights activists that are waiting for you to sign against uh, furs and against killing animals and foxes, etc., etc. This is a hadith that shows that a conversation is taking place. Don't tell them that uh, the camel was talking to them. You actually might, might, not might, for certain, you have to narrate the story to, to, to your children because they will appreciate camels talking to human beings. Exactly because they are children. Imagine you say to your child, and the camel weeped and said, Ya Rasulullah, he makes me hungry. He doesn't give me conflicts or breakfast or sausage or whatever. I don't know if camels eat these things, but I'm just speaking about the way to narrate it to the child. Now imagine Abdullah ibn Ja'far, what is he learning from all this experience? What is he internalizing? He is, say, he is internalizing the value of mercy. He is internalizing the value of responsibility that you own this animal. And if you own it, you can't abuse it because you own it. If you own your wife, between inverted commas, it doesn't mean that you abuse your wife. If, if, if you own your children, it doesn't mean that you abuse them. And abuse them, I don't mean beat them, I mean neglect them. If you own your child, this is a responsibility and this is a duty. But in the case of children and women, it's not just about feeding, but bringing them dealing with them properly and raising your children properly. You see the essence of this hadith. And this is exactly, brothers and sisters, look, we might not meet in the future, but this is exactly what I want you to inculcate in your way of thinking. To take the hadith, yes, to read it literally and understand it literally, but then close your eyes and say, Oh Allah, give me wisdom to understand hadith beyond its literal meaning in a global, in a broader horizon meaning, in a meaning that could be applicable to me living in London, or in New York, or in Africa, or in India, or in Bangladesh, or in Pakistan. Make me understand this hadith in a way that makes me feel that it's revealed to me, even if I didn't have a camel. And this is the way that I think we should be reading our Islamic texts and reading our religion, and understanding our deen. And if we do that, the deen will not be a straight jacket. The deen will not just be a Friday prayer. The deen will not be about fasting in Ramadan, and wearing fancy dress in Eid. It will not be like that. It will be my oxygen, it will be my light, it will be my entire life to be a Muslim, based on these kinds of hadith. And actually, this is the third comment that I have on this hadith. It showed children for the first time. It showed, in fact, the Arabian desert society. Those who don't kiss their, their children. It showed those people that not only children need to be kissed, but even animals have feelings. And even animals, if they had the right tongue and language to speak, they will say that we have been abused. Animals have feeling. 
animals can express themselves. And imagine for the first time, what a new revelation for Abdullah ibn Ja'far. Imagine now Abdullah ibn Ja'far growing up, having children, and narrating this story to them. And, and they ask him, yeah, yeah, oh father, did you see the weeping coming? Oh, oh father, did you hear the camel speaking? But this is not the point. The point is the values that are being taught and learned. So, brothers and sisters, what have we been saying so far? Two things. That Rasulullah is someone who had khuluq azim, the highest standard, exalted standard of manners and morals. And then we spoke about the manifestations of this khuluq azim in dealing with children. And the first manifestation was rahmah. And we said that he taught them rahmah through many ways, including embracing the trunk and wiping on the head of the camel. What is another item, immediate item, that a Rasulullah would build in a child? The child, who is most significant in his life, the parents. Hence, the item of manners and adab with parents. We call it bir al Walidain, being dutiful, uh, being good, uh, treating them with reverence and respect and kindness. I know that you have been probably advised and taught about these things in conferences and in talks. The Quran, in fact, uh, Imams talk about it, etc., etc. But still, it, there is this struggle, this tension between generations and father and mother and he wants to marry this girl and he doesn't want because she's not from the same tribe and all sorts of problems and tensions and and, and again because I think one of the reasons I'm not going to now to philosophize things but again it's because I think of the lack of this harmonious process that has been taken place the building of blocks between the parents and suddenly the son is becoming religious and suddenly he has, is, wants to change the course of his life and he's becoming aggressive and, and, and maybe the parents are not educated. I'm aware of all these kinds of problems. But let me not discuss these problems because you are the masters in that and you, you know better than me the, 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 the situation. What I can help here is to try to show you how a Rasul inculcated again and made children internalize Biril Walidain. Not through rhetoric, but through real examples. Let me begin with, actually I wasn't planning that because it, it was third or fourth uh, narrative in my, in my session, but let me actually begin with it. Because I feel it's, it's dramatic. And it's nice to begin movies with dramatic scenes and then leave you in suspense. This is a dramatic scene to me that I would like to begin my narrative with, with regards to this item in relation to Birr al-Walidayn. Rawa al-Imam Ahmed, in the book of Ahmed ibn Hanbar radiallahu anhu, he narrated, or he narrates this hadith, which is narrated by Abdullah ibn Awfa radiallahu anhu. He says, I will not mention the hadith in Arabic because it's quite long, but I will go straight away into the translation. He said, Abdullah ibn Awfa, we were with a Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam once. And again, subhanallah, this is one of the honors that you witness amazing things. And a man came and said, Ya Rasulallah, a boy is dying. A young boy is dying. And we are trying to persuade him 
and remind him to say La ilaha illallah. And he says, I can't utter it. I can't say it. Now, notice that. Imagine that you are a companion and imagine that you are not a companion but you have been taken again to the past, going outside the mosque, just witnessed an amazing trunk being embraced and now you are going and attending a circle where also amazing things, you are in the land of wonders. And Rasulullah says, does he pray? This is a very worrying question. Immediately, does he pray? And please, it's important to realize the significance of prayers. This is not our topic, but if I wanted to talk about prayers, in fact, I might mention this hadith as well. The shocking news, yes, he does. And then Rasulullah thought that this is a serious case that needs his attendance. He stood up and he went to see that boy. And the cameramen are around him. The companions, bodyguards, associates, those are the people, Abdullah ibn Awfa that is, that are going to narrate the story to you. It's not Rasulullah Rasulullah does not need to talk. There are 60, 70 people with mental tape recorders. So he went and met the boy, and Rasulullah said, قُلْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Say, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ And the boy saw Rasulullah said, Ya Rasulullah, I can't utter it. I know it, I understand it, I lived for it. I said it every time in my salah. When I say, أَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ I say it more than five times a day. But at that moment where I'm going to meet my Lord, I cannot say it. And then someone, a relative of that boy, said to him, Ya Rasulullah, كَانَ يَعُقُّ وَالِدَتَهِ Ya Rasulullah, he used to disobey his mother. We don't know what his mother used to ask him for, but that is not the point. The point is that he doesn't listen to his mother. He disobeys his mother. كَانَ يَعُقُّ وَالِدَتَهِ Now look at the following question. Now Rasulullah is trying this medic, this prophet, this rahmah. He wants to rescue that boy like he rescued that Jewish boy when he was ill. And he said at the last minute, La ilaha illallah. Imagine a Jewish boy can say, La ilaha illallah. And a Muslim boy cannot say, La ilaha illallah. Imagine that, brothers and sisters. Why? Because there is a problem called mother. Called mother. So Rasulullah says, Ahayyatun walidatuh, is his mother alive? They said, yes, good news. Let's go to the mother. They go to the mother. And look at the conversation that takes place between now the Prophet, وسلم, and the mother. And again, look at how Rasulullah dramatizes the situation. It's not just me who is dramatizing the situation. He says to her, Imagine that hellfire with its magnificence is being lit especially for your son. And that your son is going within seconds to be thrown in that hellfire. But then someone turned to you and say, you may intercede. 
would you intercede? Do you see this? He didn't speak to her about the boy. He didn't speak to her about previous incidents. That is not the point. The point is that the boy is dying. And you are called to intercede or you have been asked that you may intercede. And if you don't, this is the, the speaker now continuing. And if you don't want to intercede, it's up to you because the result will be burning him. وَإِلَّا أَحْرَقْنَاهِ أَحْرَقْنَاهِ in Arabic has, has a hot has a hot impact on the ears. Hariq. Hariq means fire. أَكُنْتِ تَشْفَعِينَ لَهُ Would you intercede? She said, Ya Rasulallah, of course I would intercede. He disobeyed. He said to her, Uff! He shouted at her. But when a moment of Hariq and Nar and hell comes, I would intercede. I would forget the past. I would embrace him. I might even throw myself in hellfire to protect him. Then Rasulullah said, Then say so. Then say, I bear witness, Ya Rasulullah, that I will intercede. And she says, Ashhadu anni I bear witness, Ya Rasulullah, that I would intercede. And then Rasul went to the boy, who Alhamdulillah was still alive, and said, قُلْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهِ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ And he said it. And he said it. And Rasulullah said exactly what he said when the Jewish boy became a Muslim. Alhamdulillah, الذي أنقذه من النار. Now you can say I used to pray. Now you can say I am pious and holy. Now you can say I attended conferences and I was an active student at the Islamic society. Now you can say all that, but not before. Not before when your mother is upset with you or your father is upset with you. This is a dramatic narrative that I wanted to begin my item of Birril Walidain with. And I think that with this narrative, we don't need any other narratives. Do we? Well, why not? Give us a more lightening up narrative. You made us probably weep. Make us smile. Rawa nasai an Aisha radiyallahu anha, the wife of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Bear in mind, by the way, when I spoke about young people, Bear in mind that when Rasulullah died, Aisha was only 18, a teenager, perhaps younger than most of you here sitting. I'm talking about the sisters. Aisha that narrated thousands of hadith and she taught many scholars and many, she was only 18 when Rasulullah passed away. And imagine this 18 years ago, not marrying after that, but being a responsible woman and educating men and doing all sorts of things in life. روى النسائي عن عائشة رضي الله عنها أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم Look at this fascinating hadith. He says, I entered Jannah. Imagine a child interacts with a human being that have seen Jannah. And what would be the question? I mean, imagine brothers and sisters that you go to your child and say, I went to Disneyland. What will your child say? Oh, my father described it for me. Is that right? So imagine Rasulullah he says, دخلت الجنة. I went to Jannah to visit. 
during Mi'raj. دخلت الجنة فسمعت قراءة. I heard a reciter reciting Quran. Beautiful voice. And I asked, من هذا? Who is this? Who, who's, whose voice is that? They said to me, he says in the hadith, فقيل لي, it has been said to me, this is Haritha ibn al-Nu'man, a companion. فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كذلكم البر. He straight away said, that is the destiny of someone who is dutiful to his parents. Because it was known in the city, in the society, that the most dutiful companion to his parents was Al-Haritha ibn al-Nu'man. So straight away he didn't have to ask why Al-Haritha ibn al-Nu'man is there. The commentators say in the hadith, He was dutiful again to his mother. Look at someone five minutes ago who was about to be thrown in hellfire and look at someone who is happy reading Quran in Jannah because he was dutiful to his mother. Look at the contrast. Isn't this good news? Now imagine, who is hearing this hadith? Imagine it's Haritha. Imagine Haritha goes to his mother and embraces his mother and says, My mother, it's because of you that I'm going to Jannah. It's because of you that Allah blessed me with a nice voice to read Quran. And the mother will say, Oh, you have to make sure that I am with you during that day. And he will say, sure, of course. Imagine Haritha ibn Nu'man gets married. And he narrates the story to his children. And imagine he says that to his children. And the children say, MashaAllah. So you are saved because you will go to Jannah? Imagine now how the children of Al-Haritha ibn Nu'man deal with their father or deal with their mother. They want to emulate and have the same destiny as the father. They will do no less with their mother as Al-Haritha did with their grandmother. Building the blocks is inherited. It's carried forward. The father, the son, and the Holy Ghost, and the grandson. It is inherited in the community and in the society. And Abi Huraira radiallahu an said, and Abi Huraira radiallahu an, and the Nabi sallam, ra'a rajulan ma'ahu ghulam. Faqala lil ghulam. Abi Huraira narrates this hadith that Rasulullah saw a boy and with him was a man. So Rasulullah asked the boy, who is this? He said, this is my father. He said, then don't walk in front of him. And don't do anything that would provoke him to insult you. Don't make your father a sinner because of you. Now, the walking in front, there are lots of talks among the fuqaha. They say, some of them said, talk, uh, walk, walk in front of him in the night and walk uh, behind him in the, in, the, in, in the daytime. Be a bodyguard, basically, to him. So don't take it literally walking in front or, or in the back. But the point is, show respect. Treat him like your friend. No, treat him like your father, not like your father. Treat him as a father because he is your father. And the final hadith, Rasul Sallallahu this hadith is narrated by a child who's called Abdullah ibn Umar at that time when he saw this incident. He said that a man came to Rasul Sallallahu and he said, Ya Rasulullah, I did a big mistake. I did a big sin. And when someone says, I did a big sin, you can imagine what sin it is. Don't imagine that much because we don't know. But I'm just saying, 
Bixen means bixen. And companions, when they say big, it's big. And look, companions do sin. That's, that's something else, that uh, companions are human beings. In case you think they are holy men walking on earth or walking on water or something. No, they, are, they sin and they, they make mistakes and some of them commit adultery and some of them drink alcohol and some of them. And we spoke about this in the first session. But they repent and they feel the guilt. This is the difference now. And they repent seriously. That is, that is the difference. So the boy said, أَصَبْتُ ذَنْبًا عَظِيمًا Rasulullah says to him, uh, then he says, Ya Rasulullah, أَصَبْتُ ذَنْبًا عَظِيمًا Is there any repentance for me? Look at the Rasulullah He doesn't say make ablution and go and make istighfar. هَلَّكَ مِنْ أُمْ Do you have a mother? Unfortunately, that is unlike the boy that uh, his mother was alive. He said, no, Ya Rasulullah, I don't have a mother. What would be the next question, do you think? You have, you have a, an auntie, the sister of the mother. It seems that the mother is so magnificent that anyone associated with her is magnificent. The mother is so honorable that anyone associated with her is honorable. So do you have a maternal aunt or an auntie or a khala? Good news, yes, ya Rasulullah. Thabarraha, be good to her. And this is your tawbah. There are other manners that Rasulullah inculcated again and taught to the children. I spoke about the adab with the parents, but there are other adabs or there are other manners that the children were taught. One of them is adab with your own brothers and sisters. And this hadith that is in Muslim narrated by Abu Huraira where Rasulullah said, whoever points, just pointing at his brother to scare him, pointing, pointing with an iron, or with a sharp pointed uh, piece of iron, or a knife. No mentioning of bombs here. That means this is bad. No, even pointing. Pointing even if you joke, jokingly. But the intention is to scare him or her. فَإِنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ تَلْعَنُهُ The angels will be cursing you even if he was your own blood brother from your father or mother. And I've put a small note with my pencil here. What about this brother who pulls the hair of his sister? Or who beats up his younger brother? Or who does what we witness happening in households? Don't take these hadiths literally. Take the essence of them. The essence is not that Rasulullah is raging war against the use of iron. So you can use plastic or you can use sticks or machine guns. No, he is raging a campaign of awareness against terrifying so what is he creating here? Do you know what is he creating? He's creating sensitivity. He's making you being sensitive to the feelings of other people. And he did this with Aba Umair, asking about his pet, and he did this with the camel, and now he's doing it with a piece of iron. Look at how Rasulullah used many examples to internalize, to institute the simple Character, which is mercy, rahma, and care, and sensitivity. This concept of sensitivity, again, being sensitive to the feelings of neighbors, and everybody needs a good neighbor. You know what is being a good neighbor, not being a neighbor from hell? Being a good neighbor, and I don't think that this is the... This is the uh, 
that this is what a good neighbor in this society means. In fact, subhanAllah, Rasulullah is instituting a higher culture of good neighboring. A higher, a far more higher culture and standard of good neighboring. You bring stuff from any grocery or any supermarket or whatever, orange and what, have you ever thought, and maybe you are right in not thinking in that society, of not, of smuggling the bags so that your neighbor might not, of course this is an extreme example because everyone can go to X and Y and buy oranges, we are not in a, in a famine here, but the, the hadith here is talking about something that is really very, uh, very sensitive. Amr ibn Shu'ayb, the companion who narrates this hadith, he says, Rasulullah said, and when you buy fruits, and again, don't take it literally, when you buy whatever, anything, unless it was a fancy car or something, but when you buy some fruit, فَهْدِي لَهُ Then give him some. Give your neighbor some. You bought some orange, give him some. But if you can't, he says, and if you don't want to do that, for obvious reasons, فَأَدْخِلْهَا سِرًّا Then bring it into the house in secret. Because at that time, by the way, and in the four great imams, I spoke about Medina, the structure of Medina and the architecture of Medina and how the neighborhoods were so close to each other and how certain in certain buildings, one can overlook the inner adjacent house. Very humble housings, brothers and sisters. Rasulullah's house, Al-Hasan al-Basri says, Hassan al-Basri is a great tabi. He says, I witnessed the house of Rasulullah and Al-Hasan al-Basri was, was tall. He says, I have to, when I enter to the house of Rasulullah I have to actually bend a little bit because the ceiling was so low. Very, very humble houses. So, because he's bound to see you, the neighbor. So smuggle it, enter it in secret because he's bound to see you. وَلَا يَخْرُجُ This is the point now from the hadith that I want to bring forward. وَلَا يَخْرُجُ وَلَدُكَ لِيَغِيظَ بِهَا وَلَدُهُ And let not your son or daughter take the fruit outside to vex or to show off to the son or daughter of the neighbor. To, to say, look, I'm, I'm having this rare fruit from Paris or from where, and just eating it in front of him. Are you harming him? Are you causing him pain? Are you bleeding him? Are you pointing a sharp piece of iron on his face? No. But you are hurting him. His feelings, that is. Because he might be poor, and he might like to taste it. And you know what else Rasulullah is doing? And this is something that you might think is far-fetched, but I tend to think that this is maybe one intention. I think Rasulullah is trying to bind the society together. So he doesn't want hatred. But more importantly, he wants good companionship between the children. He wants them to go to the mosque together. He wants them to play football or cricket together. And to do that, they must not anger each other. They must not make themselves hate each other. And if this orange is going to make us lose each other, then we don't want this orange to come in between us. I know that I seem a little bit funny when I give these examples or these parables, but this is what I think Rasulullah is also doing. He wants to bind the children together. He wants them to continue to be good neighbors, not neighbors from hell. And there are other adab, and one of many, many adabs, table manners. By the way, we have our table manners.
beginning with the name of Allah and, and eating that which is close to us. But there is one manner that I would like to focus on because I think it's relevant to our society, and that is the manner of your identity, preserving your identity. Not behaving in a way that uh, will make you imitate. I know the pressure of the fashion. I know the pressure of uh, style and wanting to look good and be good and to be like the others, not to be uh, singled out. And when I talk about a distinctive identity, I don't mean it in a negative way, in an aggressive way, but I mean it in a decent, dignified way. And as an example of what I'm talking about, which might bring things clearer to mind, is this hadith which is again narrated by a child, Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu He said, Rasulullah saw a young boy shaving parts of his head and leaving the other parts unshaved. Call him a marine, call him a punk, call him whatever. It seems that this boy was following a certain fashion or was playing with his appearance as a boy wanting to be distinct and noticeable. And Rasulullah said to him, You either shave it all or leave it all, but don't shave part and leave part of it. And I think that again, Rasulullah wanted to make the child be dignified and have his distinct identity and not to follow the fashions and not to be just like sheep following whatever the magazines and the TV and Big Brother or whatever says. And number two, teaching the child to be independent. Teaching the child to be independent. That I might see someone, my best friend, but I have principles and I have rules guiding me and I shouldn't be doing that. Now I've talked about the hair. You extrapolate. The trousers, the skirt, the hijab, the attitude, the behavior, the accent, certain words, certain manners, certain attitudes. Are you articulating your identity as a Muslim, as a British Muslim? Or are you articulating your identity as someone who wants to be like this celebrity or like this group or like this organization? This is, I think, what you need to think about when you go and buy toys for your children. I am not, I am not against Barbie. I don't know her, believe me. But I don't buy Barbie uh, uh, toys. Even if it was the, any pink, Barbie pink, I don't buy it. I, in fact, I'm against, um, you might say I'm crazy, and this is, I'm against identifying girls with pink and boys with blue. If I found something decent, I, but anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't, I'm not the one now who decides. It's either my wife or now it's recently my daughter. They are the, but at least there are principles. Barbie, no. Certain celebrity, no. Because Barbie will come to the house and her, her boyfriend, she will say, no, no, my boyfriend is waiting outside. So the boyfriend comes. And Barbie in the summer wants to take her clothes off. What, what can I do now? So, no Barbie.